the the profit figure does does continue from mm. a book of changes. There's a profit figure, and then there's like a anything by him. It's kind of like an Easter egg lah for the like two fans I have. Welcome back to another episode of Sploosh. So today we are interviewing Daryl Lim, the author of A Book of Changes and most recently Anything But Human, which was nominated for the Singapore Literature Prize last year. It's been a long time since we last interviewed someone. We're also joined by Anurag Selao, who will introduce himself later. Daryl will introduce himself later as well. So today we'll talk about a few of Daryl's books and also just like general themes um, like history and also like contemporary concerns. Yeah, so without further ado, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, Anurag first, maybe. Hi, my name is Anurag. I think that's it. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, uh, hi everyone. Yeah, this is the first time I'm doing something like this. Well, maybe. Um, but uh, I'm Daryl. I think of myself primarily as a poet, but I also edit, uh, translate, uh, write criticism. Um, yeah. And very happy to be here today. Although I, I think I, I, I was an hour late <laughs> because of uh, confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I should also help. I will help Anurag sort of introduce himself a little bit. He's a he's a great poet, and his his poetry was just recently published in uh, New Singapore Poetries, which is a uh, quite a milestone volume of uh, Singaporean uh, poetry. Yeah, so very excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for introducing yourselves. <laughs> so I think. To start off, let's just start with anything but human to dive into other topics as well. I think something that's quite striking for anything but human, especially for me as a reader, right, is how unfamiliar the language feels. Um, because with other poems, right, or other poetry collections, um, the poems are quite cohesive, quite coherent to get what it's trying to say, right? There's like a message or meaning behind it. Whereas with anything but human, it's like the meaning is suspended. And also, like, very recently, I read. Um, a collection of translated works, translated Chinese poetry. And that really reminded me of Anything But Human, because like Anything But Human, some, it kind of reads also like translated works, you know? It's like the meaning is kind of mediated of sorts. So like, do you want to explain this defamiliarization of the language? Uh, I'm not sure I can. I think maybe I can think of, sort of contextualize it and maybe in terms of like my, my writing journey. Like, like, I think I started off with the first book, which is A Book of Changes, which was like, Wow, it's like seven, seven years ago now, <laughs> which was published, and definitely like it started. I started writing maybe a decade ago. That was very like, in some ways, straightforward poems in the sense of if you read them, you kind of know what they were going on about. They had some, they were about historical episodes. You know, they were in some ways, some of them were didactic, some of them were just having fun. Uh, but it was like very coherent, yeah. in, in that sort of way. And I think I got a bit tired of that, or I got, or or, or rather, it felt like I needed to push the boundaries of like language a little bit more um, and so I think that's how the genesis of how anything but human came about in a way it was trying to depart from myself yeah were there like influences that moved you in that direction uh wow I think a lot <laughs> I think certainly like people like Wong Mei and, and Wong Pui Nam who are two pioneering sort of Singaporean Malaysian poets had a big thing to do with it so Wong Mei I think taught me like how to use space to sort of break up the flow of the of, of words on a page, which was quite instructive. And you can see I, I deployed that, that technique yeah. quite a lot. 
and the idea was to was to sort of do that uh, also in my translations. Yeah. So she she did that. I think Walpinam by way of trying to to use images and symbols that don't necessarily explain themselves. And that's what he's very good at. So in 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 a way, myth and symbols don't have to explain themselves. They sort of are what they are. So those those two people were influential. How about Chinese poetry? Because the epigraph is a quote from a Chinese poem, right? And also yes. there are many translations of Bai Ji. So like, maybe you could talk about the influences of Chinese poetry or Chinese literature. Yeah. So the the epi- actually so the title of the book is from a poem. It's actually from a not a poem not by me. It's by this uh, lady called Wang Xiaoni. She's like a contemporary Chinese poet, uh, and she in some ways reminds me of Wang Mi as well because her images are kind of like frenzied, frantic, very interior, kind of this this like mindscape of her own where she's like this this sort of uh, struggling person, and her her language really struck me both in Chinese but also because I read it in in like side by side translation, and I really love her 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 work. And so she has been a huge influence. After her, after finding her, because she was, she, she's translated in this series uh, of work by Zephyr Press, where they basically publish Chinese poems and then English poems side by side. I, I sort of sought out more Chinese poets, contemporary Chinese poets, and I think they are actually have been a huge influence, uh, contemporary Chinese poets. I think the way they use uh, images and language has been so inventive. So that, that's been big for me. And I think because I can read the original Chinese, it adds a, another layer of meaning. Lah. Yeah. The, the Pai Chi stuff is a bit of a departure. Maybe we talk about it later. But yeah, um, it is because Pai Chi is like a Tang dynasty poet. It's like 1500 years ago. <laughs> so it's so a, bit, a bit different. Because his language is actually very plain and simple. He intended his poetry to, to be able to be like easily, uh, easily understood. So it almost acts as a contrast or a palate cleanser in the second section. I think that's quite interesting as well because um, there's also another palette cleanser in the first half of the book. He's Life Forgotten as a Dream. And I just learned from Anurag that that comes from him, right? Yeah. yeah, so like both of them come from like really long ago texts. So as if they are sources of meaning, because maybe they're constructed at a time when meaning was still like very stable, right? Compared to now where definitions run amok, like many things can be defined in many ways. So like, um, was there an intention to like rely on texts from long ago to like ground your te- uh, ground this collection? Oh, uh, in a way, I think it's more because I'm a bit of a magpie, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like poetically, I sort of just like grab stuff that I find interesting. So I mean, the book is quite eclectic in that yeah. sense, like, Right? Because like basically, there's like a reference to a hymn, uh, which is the fly forgotten as a dream. I can't, I can't remember what the what what the hymn is called, but basically, the story of that is that 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 phrase from that hymn struck me. Because the hymn is like a quite, a, I mean, hymns are quite like positive, you know, yeah. uh, like we, are, we will all be safe, sort of thing. And then, but that, that line was very weird because it says, uh, they fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day, I think, which is a weirdly like bleak, bleak phrase. So I was like struck by it. So these weird things where things jut out and don't make sense. And sort of like it's like a fissure in like text or stuff or stuff like that. Yeah. They they strike me, so I just pick them up. Yeah, I mean like um, your your magpie reference is actually I think quite topical, because it brings to mind at least for me the the idea of the poet as a as a translator as a as a kind of machine for gathering these inputs and then structuring them into some kind of output which is not necessarily related. 
and I'm reminded of as how Yang mentioned just now, Chat GPT, and the way that there's this is interest in the, you know, the weird neural processes that drive you know formation of language, artificially and you know in humans, yeah. and I know that you did start a kind of Instagram account um, <laughs> related to that. Can, can you tell us a bit more about? Uh, you know, I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure there's much to talk about for that. So there was a Instagram account I started called Anything Bot Human which is meant to be, I think, kind of like, in some ways, it's a self-parody. <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, it's a self-parody. It's kind of like, but, but the idea was to feature, like, singlet classics. So I review, like, Evan Thumbu, Wong Mei, uh, Wong Kui Nam, Robert Yeo. But the idea was to give, like, uh, captions or book reviews that didn't really make, make sense. They were not about the book at all. <laughs> they were like, and basically, it's this this taking this this idea of generated language to an extreme. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I I know this is a consistent thread of like interest in weird nonsensical language. Right? Even in Food Republic, you anthologize the the food reviews from <laughs> was it Omote or Sushiro? Yes. Which I mean, yeah, could, tell us more about about that. I think the impulse comes from the fact that I like I like to find poetry in things that people wouldn't think of as poetry. So there's like. Um, there's, for example, what uh, you just said about there for Food Republic, which is this book on food that uh, I co-edited with with some folks, uh, Anne and Hao Kuang. We decided to ask this uh, this uh, restaurant who were, they were coming out of like fantastical like baroque descriptions of Japanese food. <laughs> they're they're really quite funny, and so we we decided to ask them if we could feature their social media post on as poetry lah. <laughs> And actually, this was the genesis of the book because Hauko and I were debating if these were considered poems or not. And then we said, let's do a food poem book. Man, this is how it, this is what happened. <laughs> yeah. And, and the idea is like, you know, it's, it's that, but also like, if you look at anything but human, there's like, I mean, you wouldn't know it, but there are things which are basically quotes. They're like taken from things I hear, from people talking, yeah. brochures, pamphlets. Uh, there's a poem actually that I didn't include in the book, but it's basically I uh, it's found text from like a from a condominium brochure. <laughs> so it's like these these weird like oddly poetic things come up in everyday life. What you don't expect? Yeah. Which brings us to the whole notion of what this desert of the real, right? It's like you're in a landscape of language which is like, like debris or like flotsam. And you're just picking and choosing this and, and constructing it into the anthology itself or the, the collection itself. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think in many ways, it kind of like disturbs the idea of, I mean, not, I'm not the first person to do this for sure, but it disturbs the idea of like the author as the sole author of the, po- of the poem. And maybe that, that, what, that is what ties like the pastiche of like uh, established authors yeah. who I know. And also like authors that we don't know, like, the people who wrote the condo brochure, the people who like wrote a uh, terrible copy. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's a mishmash of like, of authorship. So I, I think that the thought that I'm a translator is a good one. Like I'm not necessarily a creator enough myself, uh, although I am, but that's not, not the only role I play. But also the idea of being a chatbot, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is which is that you brought it up. Because it's like kind of like the chatbot brings together things and makes it better <laughs> somehow. Yeah. I recognize like the sort of democratic spirit to this because we're like um, identifying like poetry in everyday language. Uh, 
asserting that the author isn't like the the writer isn't the sole author of the text, right? But I think a possible critique of um, anything but human or like poems like this is also that it could be rather inaccessible to the masses, right? So what would you say would be your, is there an ideal reader in mind or how should people approach such texts? That's an interesting one. It's quite interesting you mentioned that because I was just reading about, because last year was like the 100th anniversary of like uh, The Wasteland, yeah. right? Yeah, and, 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 <laughs> and The Wasteland is often thought of as like this very high modernist text yeah. which very baroque and only rep references. But actually what T.S. Eliot thought he was doing, and I don't know how many people agree, but what he thought he was doing was actually doing, in some ways, not that different from what I, I think I'm doing, right? He was bringing in voices from the street, um, all these more like uh, uh, pop culture things, which I think people would have been horrified at, or, or, or con conservatives in his age would have been horrified at. So I don't see it as that different from what he's doing. So maybe just, just like, yeah, on that note, yeah. But the ideal reader, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I don't think about idea readers, but I think anyone who's interested in, in, in not taking language at, um, what's the word? Well, sorry, I've just woken up my thing. But uh, at face value, sorry, not taking language at face value. Yes, that's, that's, that's the phrase. Yeah, people who don't want to take language at face value should read this book. And I think it's also, I think, I think the other thing is about like, if you ever thought that in some ways, language was always like very deceptive like the words you used to describe things the moment you try to describe them they kind of like mislabel things already as you go along you continue to you continue this fiction i think if you're uncomfortable with language as as, as a as a representation of like what is real you should read this book <laughs> sorry that's like the worst sound ever um, but <laughs> but let's let's go along with that yeah yeah i mean there's this o'hara line i think in uh, having a coke with you where he says something like there are no faces in the paintings just paint or something like that and i feel that you draw attention to language as like the medium of communication as opposed to what's being signified yes exactly that's exactly it yeah it is all pain <laughs> uh but i mean it's not a, in a way it's not and maybe you can talk about this as we go along it's not like a cynical or completely dispirited thing it's not pessimistic. Right? Yeah. The book is not a pessimistic book, although I think people might think it is, but it's not actually. It's actually quite celebratory in the sense of, in, in, or it's equal parts celebration and disgust. It's kind of, it aims to be in that, that place between all things where it's neither like pessimistic nor optimistic. It kind of revels and celebrates, but also is disgusted, condemns. Yeah, it's in that in-between spot <laughs> of ambivalence. Do you compare yourself to like the role of prophet in like, because there are poems about prophets, right? In both, I think, A Book of Changes and, and Think About Humans. So have you seen yourself as a prophet when you write? Oh, you're, you're like super observant. Yeah. The, the prophet figure does, does continue from mm. A Book of Changes. There's a prophet figure and then there's like a Anything But Human. It's kind of like an Easter egg like, for the like, Two fans that have the two fans in this room. <laughs> but, yeah, but actually, the there's a long story to this. Is the prophet figure is actually Wong Pinam? He's kind of I imagine things in his voice, as it were, because he's kind of like a, a grandfather poet figure to me. I don't really think of myself as a prophet because like, I think poetry cannot prophesize anything. But the idea of a prophet is interesting to me because in some ways the Prophets emerge when things have gone wrong, right? Yeah. Like when the landscape is shattered, when like 
stuff has gone wrong, they, they kind of emerge to tell you like what is there's something wrong, uh-huh. like yeah, like like and, and to tell you what to expect. So I kind of like the idea of that. In T.S. Eliot was kind of embodied that role as well, right? Wasteland. Exactly the Tiresias, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, I I was a bit like, um, in some ways, uh, pleased, but also like very, um disappointed that in some ways people like me and, and the anything about human hasn't quite escaped from like the gaze of T.S. Eliot or like all the like, influence of T.S. Eliot because yeah. like in many ways everyone says that like modern poetry or contemporary poetry is still footnotes to Eliot mm. <laughs> when I realized this I was like a bit depressed <laughs> but also amazed that Eliot has so much influence and sway over us still I think something that also fascinated me and anything but human is the recurring motive of discounts. Like, what drew you to discounts? Discounts, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, there is a part, a strand of the book, which I think we all would have picked up on, where it's, it's actually a, I won't say commentary, but it's sort of, it's about, I, I hate this term, but I have thought to use it. It's about late capitalism. It is this idea that, you know, that in some ways, uh, we have all accepted that capitalism is the most logical and, coherent way of organizing ourselves that everyone accepts and there's no alternative to it. But at the same time, it's a system that produces ridiculous outcomes and like absurdities. And that's where discounts come in, I think. Because discounts are kind of a recurrent feature of the system. But to the point that it's actually absurd that such things exist. And I mean, now it's even more absurd because you have stuff like 11, 11, 12, 12. So yeah. It's almost like a regular cycle <laughs> of discounts and yet we still fall for it. So... I think that's the aspect where the idea of discounts and sales is like points you towards the absurdity of the system and yet we still believe in it or we still partake in it joyfully, right? So that's one aspect. Then I think, of course, Singapore is kind of like the center of discounts. Like we invented like the Great Singapore Sale. <laughs> we invented all these things about discounts. We perfected some arts of like soft selling, right? So it's kind of interesting to, to think about that in that day. And I think in some ways, um, the collection is somewhat at least colored by the time it was written in. Um, you know, the references at least passingly to retrovirals and antibiotics and, and COVID and so on. Um, you know, how much was the experience of writing it in 20, I assume at least part of it over 2020, 2021, how much did that like, color the anthology, the collection? Mm. No, that's a good question. And funnily enough, I'm going to tell you that actually most of it was written before. COVID, yeah, which is, which just took a while to get to publication. So there are a few poems there which were written during COVID that I added in, but there are like three or four poems. Most of it was before. So maybe it is prophetic. <laughs> yeah, in the sense of it predicted COVID, but it was too late to, to, to predict it. It came out in like 2021. The obsession with viruses and viral, I think, comes, I think, with an awareness of, my own awareness of HIV and AIDS pandemic. Uh, epidemic and the idea of medicine I think was as a strand that goes through the I mean not throughout the book but there is a sense of it because I think the idea of disease and sickness is kind of what undermines this idea of modernist perfection so you can't engineer your way out of everything eventually you will die you'll fall sick and die or something so the idea of illness is something that we haven't been able to conquer right so it is the thing that still I think reminds us that we are human so it creeps up a lot towards the end of the first section because that's where it comes to an end. In a way, that's art, right? And it comes to an end. And sickness and illness is where 
it comes in uh, to, to remind us of, well, yeah, of our mortality. Sorry, this is very like cliche, but that's why that is the road that is. Uh, the memento mori. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But also, I think our, the reminder that we have failed to master it though, still in some ways, despite our best attempt. And I guess, I mean, for me, that kind of brings me to the thread of, of who the poet or the persona is as a persona. <laughs> Which, you know, then again, we, we have to cover Credo as, as a piece where you try and explain yourself. Or at least the persona tries to explain himself. Yes. Can we talk about Credo? We can. <laughs> okay, I mean, just to explain to our, to our viewers. Uh, Credo is the poem that... Oh, no, actually, no. It's the second last poem of the book. But it's the only, I think, longish poem that stretches over four, four or five pages, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, it is... Unlike the rest of the book, it is... I, I mean, I don't know what, what, how y'all would think, but it sort of is straightforward in the sense of it's just a series of I believe statements. I believe in this, I believe in that. Um, and Credo, of course, in Latin means I believe. It was the genesis of this... So the book originally didn't have this poem. It came in as quite a late edition. And it was basically after review from Larry, Larry Yipil. So I mean some of you have heard the story, but Larry said to me that your book is great, but it lacks like a punch at the end. It lacks like you, you need to go out with a bang. You can't go out with a with a with a whimper. That's TSL again. Um but anyway. <laughs> uh yeah. And I took his took him on and I basically wrote a long poem because he said you need to write a long poem. So I like yeah like, like it was very painful to write long poems. I never write long poems, so this is what happened. And if I were to analyze my own self and my own text, I would say it is, in a way, I think is addressed to people who might feel like the book is an intimidating book or like it doesn't explain itself sufficiently, right? It's kind of like, okay, so who are you after all, all of this? Where are you? What do you believe in? I mean, so it tries to answer that, but of course doesn't, lah, because. No, I could never do that. I could never sincerely tell people what I believe. But so it's a mixture, it's an admixture of like false statements, of some real statements of what things I believe, some absurd statements of things that I, that I believe. And it's in some ways as far as I'm willing to go to reveal myself in the book. Can you take us through the ending of that poem? Sure. Okay. Maybe I just, I just read out the line before. I believe that time is running out. There was too much anyway. And as the handsome bot on my Facebook tells me, time is like a pig knife. Good night. What do you want to know about this ending? Why, why end it this way? Uh, so factually, uh, this is something a handsome bot on my Facebook feed <laughs> said to me. Oh. Uh, time is like a pig knife. Good, <laughs> good night. So again, there's the magpie nature of it. But I thought it was both uh, an amazing way to end because it's kind of, it addressed the issue I was talking about, which is time. And it also didn't answer anything. Because <laughs> time is like a pig line, doesn't mean anything. Oh, maybe it does, I know. And it, yeah, like, it, it speaks to what we're talking about. The idea of bot, of botishness and humanness. And yeah, is it... <laughs> I mean, what, what, what is he saying? But at the same time, does it matter? Yeah. And for some reason, I'm reminded of Hamlet. You know, because you know, Ham and Pig and also the whole goodnight sweet prince thing. Oh, wow, I didn't think of that, but nice. <laughs> We can just say what's in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Larry read it because he, I, so I gave him the book after a while. He had, he hadn't read this poem. And he, cut, he, he called it a generous gesture to the reader, which I think I sort of agree with. Yeah. So I think of it as, as yeah, it's my generous, like, peacemaking offer if you hated the book. 
maybe you'll like this. <laughs> this will at least save your save your um, uh, twenty one dollars. <laughs> at least make you feel that your twenty one dollars is worth it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It also, I think, it has been a convenient poem because it's the easiest poem to like get people to understand what the book is about. I think mm-hmm. it's like a, it's like the gateway. Is it? Actually, I thought the gateway was kind of like definition. <laughs> thought oh. definition was the one that I mean, think. Okay, so like there's this obsession with meaning, you know, and how it's like if everything can mean something in so many different ways, then what does this thing truly mean? It's like, yeah. It's, yeah I think I feel like that was the gateway to the collection for me. Definition. Yeah, it's right. a very short poem. Right. It just, I mean, I, 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 it's just like, I can't even read it out, actually. Yeah, Definition is a prion, folding what used to be sense into madness. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's more interesting on a page, though, because there are, like, yeah. spaces to contend with. But, <laughs> but sorry, uh, you, you were saying? Oh, it was, the, like, the yeah. gateway. Late, another late edition. Uh-huh. I didn't want, I took it out, put it back in, at the end. Because I thought, okay, yeah, I need a poem that Basically, it explains, I think, what we were just talking about, where in some ways, naming and, and languaging things mm-hmm. actually d- distorts it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that's part of it. There's another poem I'm also very interested in because I'm a fan of... I used to be a huge fan of Vojak's music. And then there's a poem called New World Symphony, right? So were you inspired by the symphony itself? Or? I was, I was, oh, wow. I was, I was, I was. Is this... If you listen, if you listen to the New World uh, Symphony, you really believe a New World is on the making, is on the mm-hmm. verge of being formed, yeah. Which is what oh, the second part is yeah. about. Yeah, the second part is about new world being formed. So I, I, I thought I had the reference there. Though. Yeah. Another thing is also like, there's a recurring form that's used right in um, Junk Space, Rhapsodies, and Carnivorous Reveries. So, yes. could you guys through that form? It's uh, actually a pantoum. But it's not a proper pantoum, right? It, I think it sort of is. I mean, there's no real... Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a pantoum, I think. I think. Uh, which is derived from, of course, the, the traditional Malay form, mm. the pantun. Uh, again, I learned this from John Yao. John Yao, who's this, uh, this Asian-American poet, he uses it to great effect. And I was very stunned when I first saw his pantoums. So I, I thought, how can I use the, the pantoum to, to similarly do that? It is a bit different. You're right in there. It's different because it changes a little bit yeah. from each line to line. Yeah, And that, that, was, the, that was my... Adaptation of it. Um, the slipperiness of language. But also of like perspective. Because basically the perspectives and the meanings change a little bit yeah. as the as it develops. So when it's repeated again, it's not exactly it's not it's often not the same line. Mm. Yeah, and that was the idea. I use it actually in junk space rhapsodies, which is about in uh, a shopping mall, really. <laughs> because it is it is the form that helps me give the sense of like di- of di- dizzying repetition. Yeah which you often find in malls or shopping spaces. So that, that was the intended effect, I think. I think to wrap up the discussion on anything but human, right? What do you think writing it has done for you, right? intellectually or psychologically? Wow, that's a big question. Because, um, for example, for like confessional poets, right? Some of them maybe write to answer questions for themselves or to overcome trauma, right? So, but this is clearly not confessional in the confessional sense. So what has writing anything but human done for you? Oh, that's a very good question, yeah. I, I guess you're right in that, like, for conventional poets, it helps them at least reckon or deal with a episode, right? Yeah. And then they, they can maybe not move on, but at least they have dealt with it. They have exhausted that, that well. Um, I think for me, it was very important to write this because it sort of established... I felt like... I felt myself having quite a distinct voice, I think, in the book. 
or which is a weird thing to say because it's actually such a disparate book. Yeah. But in some ways, this feels like the most like me that I've mm-hmm. ever written, uh, which is funny to say again because it's only my second book. But I think it felt like I had come up with something that I was very happy with as a representation of what who I am. I think the first book was was that, but I felt it was in some ways less secure in itself, yeah. This was, I was like, quite secure in it. So it was important for me to have written it. Yeah. And I think first time it can be an accident. <laughs> the second time you publish a book of poems, you felt like, okay, yeah, you are kind of a poet, I, 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 I guess. So in that sense, of, I think it was important for my identity, self-identity as a poet, yeah, that this was real for me. I think also it helped me get over, I think, the, I think that's why the book has the first and second half. The first half is sort of writing yourself into a sort of rut. And then the second half tries to free yourself from that sort of rut. So it was a process of trying to reinvent myself as well. So it was important to have written that. So would you continue writing in this style? I don't think so, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I might be the sort of poet who kind of like each book is a new sort of voice or new direction. Maybe it's a there's con- there are continuities of like voice between each book but like it's a new it's an attempt to reinvent yourself somewhat. So I think I think I might be that sort of poet but it's hard to tell. So I, I, I think of it as two types of poets. One type of poet essentially writes the same book but like differently, or same voice. Has this, there's a continuity of voice. Anyone in mind? Uh, and it's not. This is not a criticism, <laughs> by the way. It's because they act, they often write better and like yeah. more evolved versions of the book. So Cyril Cyril Wong is someone I think of in that light, and I think he's done it like better and better each time. There are some departures, lah. So people would say Satori Blues is kind of a bit of a departure, but generally the story folds. It's kind of like one book, not one book, but different versions yeah. of of the book. Oh, they're very similar themes. The other kind of poet kind of like writes a different book each time. And it's like almost a departure yeah. in different ways, yeah. Uh, I would say, I've heard Elvin Pang describe himself that way. I don't know if that, I haven't really thought about whether that is truly representative of how he writes, but I think he's someone in that ballpark. So I'm thinking I might be more of the second, but it's too early to say lah. To rise is often to stumble into a new beginning. Consider the sun peeking out from a pink horizon. But new days can also bring new anxieties. Sea levels, costs of living, the tension between two people. For our inaugural magazine issue, we invite you to submit work that engages with the notion or the motion of rising. From a bed, from a fall, or from the waters. Texts that float and bob that uncurl like a cobra or unfurl like a flag. We'll keep our heads turned skywards. We pay $10 for poems and art and $20 for prose and creative nonfiction. Submit your works now to splooshsg at gmail.com. The deadline is 31st of March, 2023. You could talk about your first book just briefly. Um, it's your debut, debut collection, right? Yes. And just wondering why choose to make historical concerns the, the crux of your debut collection as a poet. Oh, I guess there's one very practical one in which I was actually coming back from having done like a history bachelor's and master's like uh, con- con- consecutively. So I was in that space of historical inquiry. So I was thinking about 
academic history, I was, I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, I was good at it, I guess. And then, <laughs> and I sort of had done a thesis and everything. And it was kind of like entering the poetry world that was my sort of bridge, la, from the world of history to the world of poetry. And I started thinking about what can you use poetry to talk about? How can you use poetry to talk about history to illuminate it in ways that academia can't? Mm. So that's in some ways where the book is situated. There's a poem in the collection about the race riots, right? In, ah, in 21st yes. July 1964. Yes. So how is it to write a poem about an event with such like historical gravity, like lives lost and political implications? Uh, it was not that difficult in a way because the, the entry point was my uh, own, fa- own family. Mm. Because it really started off with the, with the story that my grandpa uh, told me. That basically, during the race riots, he he lived nearby. He was like in Kalang area, which is actually where I started. Yeah, Kalang Kielang uh, area. And the kampong was there. So he basically fled with my mom in his arms. Because she, she, she was a toddler then. So just running away. And then I believe then uh, some... Uh, he, he shouted with a... With a family, a Malay family actually, uh, in another kampong, something like that. Yeah, um, and so that is the central thread that goes through that sequence of poems, and it's it's helps because in some ways the book also tries to like um, tie different levels of history together, right? Of time, so there's like national history and like there's family history, there's like global geographic history, and so that. It was trying to tie this my family's history to like a national historical event. So what was last rites inspired by an actual event? Last rites. Last rites is the last poem, right? Yeah. Of the book. Uh, last rites. Uh, it is a bit about NS, I think. Yeah. So partly there's some NS experience. Um, I don't know if I would have ended the book on that, on that, on the same sequence. Now. Yeah, it was kind of a last minute choice. Maybe one that I'm not the most happy with. I don't think it sets the right tone, but to end the book on. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's there. I did think it mirrored the, the poem that opened the collection quite nicely, though, because the poem that opens the collection kind of gives you that juxtaposition of like really grand historical events and also like really minute events, right? And then in Last Rites, it's also like just suddenly just zooming, zooming in on a very possibly historically insignificant event, like the death of someone, but in the context of an actual person, right, he would experience it in a huge way, for example. Yeah. So I think it mirrors the opening quite well, in my that's opinion. That's, that's great. <laughs> I, I love the retrospective coherence that you are imposing on me. <laughs> but it's great because, I mean, to be honest, I think I would have done that, that poem differently. But I mean, yeah. So which period in history fascinates you the most? I know I'm also like history obsessed though. Yes, you are. <laughs> I studied the Renaissance. Yeah, yeah, the study of the Renaissance, uh, particularly like Renaissance philosophy and art oh. in Europe and around Europe. So that was where I started off on. But actually, what if you ask me now what I'm really interested in, I guess uh, I've always been very interested in, in like Singapore's history and history yeah. of the region. Yeah. So that's always been my, I would say, my speciality, um, even from before that. It's just that because I was in the, I was in the UK, there weren't really experts doing yeah. it, so I didn't really specialize in it. So it didn't make sense. So that's one. Uh, Chinese history is interesting to me as well, but generally quite interested in most forms of history. The fascination with Singapore's history is something I also picked up on in Wa Dao, the Chinese book. Okay, yeah, because you talk about the history of Potong Pasir, right? And 
I think you, you were doing some research while writing that and you discovered new things. Can you remember what was it? Uh, yeah. Right, so can you remember what new things you learned about Potong <laughs> No, but firstly, I'm amazed. Do you read it in Chinese? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, I bought the book. Your Chinese must be very good. Because, I mean, I say that because I didn't write it in Chinese. Uh-huh. So, so it was translated from Chinese to, to English. Yeah. But secondly, it's in Fanti. It's in it's traditional in Chinese script. So I'm amazed you read it. I have not read it myself in Chinese. <laughs> Or at least not in Fanti, so well done. Uh, um, the book, uh, the, the piece you talk about is, is about the neighborhood I live in now, uh, Potong Pasir. And basically, it, it tries to construct a sort of local history of it, yeah. but not in like a coherent narrative. Uh. It's basically like vignettes yeah. of like local history. So there's like stuff about the, uh, the floods in, in Potong Pasir, because it used to get flooded all the time. I, I don't know why it's not flooded now. People drowning in like quarries or something. Yeah, yeah. So people used to drown in the because in the, in the, it used to be a quarry, then it became disused. Then basically disused quarries, when there's rain and flooding, it becomes a huge pond. That's why the vegetables grew so well there, so these be veg- vegetable farms and markets there. Also why people drown there all the time, which is quite sad. So it's about yeah trying to construct this local history. But not in a didactic or narrative sort of way, but more like little snippets, yeah. like, which are kind of like, yeah, which you might not know about. You talked about this the temp- this temple in Yishun that has like uh, a Tapuokong and some other um, deity, right? Yeah. From another folk religion. So, also in, I think, anything about human, that's a poem about folk religion, justifying something about folk religion, right? So, uh, is it something you've been interested in recently? In a book of changes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, religion, yes. I mean, religion, I. I Two things I'm interested in about religion. One is like kind of like informal and, and uh, syncretic practice of, of religion. Yeah. Recently, I've been very inspired by it because uh, I actually went on a, on a tour around li- the Little India area last year. Mm-hmm. And basically, we were visiting what we call informal shrines. So they're not temples, but they're like basically like roadside shrines that people mm-hmm. set up. And in some ways, they, the, these shrines reflect the community that, that, that they serve. So you would have Ganesh, but you also have Huanyang. You might have a like a Thai god. Mm-hmm. And it's like very cool. Uh. To, to me, it's like super interesting that these things are just there. And it also, I think, points to the fact that Singapore is actually a deeply religious place. There's a lot of religious energy about, obviously. Yeah. Like, people really um, um, do believe in, in these things. Uh, and like, large or very significant and, and like, venerable trees will attract shrines, like, quite naturally. So I think I'm fascinated by this informal practice of religion, more so than the, than the organized type, because, simply because it's less explored. Yeah. And really reveals the side of Singapore that you, don't, that you wouldn't think would exist if you were just an outsider to it, or even if you lived here for a long time, if you don't like look at it. But actually, super interesting. You talked about venerable trees. I thought of this one tree in Topayo that, that's really huge, and there's a shrine there. I think yes. when I grew up, and I, I used to go there with my family quite often, my dad would tell me about it being like a religious place or something. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, and it's funny how they are like kind of a way, uh, I don't know if there's a right word, but it's in a way quite democratic mm-hmm. because, or, pop, or populist, because they kind of like pop up and are maintained and sort of ebb and flow as people believe and disbelieve and, you know, buy into what the, these energies are. And that's how they set up shrines. So it's kind of like weird. It's like a. It's almost like a spiritual map of the of the city. So I, I kind of love the idea. I would love to write about it more one day, actually.
what you're working on right now, actually. Oh, uh, I'm working on... What am I working on? I'm working on this book of Malaysian-Singapore writing called The Second Link. Yeah. So we are putting it together, me and three other editors from Singapore and Malaysia. So it's basically meant to like commemorate the 60th anniversary of merger. Because uh-huh. we merged in 1963, Singapore and Malaysia. And when I say commemorate, but really it's just these essays will reflect on the relationship la, between Singapore and Malaysia. So we thought about this is very important to do. So in like the last phase of editing. So I'm also working on an anthology of Wong Puinam's work. So Wong Puinam, as some of you know, died last year. So we're thinking about putting out a collection of his selected work sometime this year. Um, so uh, this is the year of like other people's work la, for me. <laughs> Which I think is a, is a nice change. It's like the editor role coming out more which I think is, is quite fun. Um, so less of my own work for now. More of Inane Asylum. <laughs> yes, more of Inane Asylum. How did it start? Uh, I think we should explain to, yeah. our, to our listeners. <laughs> um, uh, Inane Asylum is basically like an Instagram hashtag that I use uh, in my Instagram stories to catalogue uh, what I call instances of the Inane Asylum. And I think of Singapore basically as an, as an inane asylum. So we are not mad, but we have a lot of inanity. We are like a, an inane people, obsessed with inane things. Uh, yeah, so that just catalogs <laughs> that. Yeah, it just, I just thought it was, it was funny. But yeah, it's grown to be quite a thing. Like people submit things to be catalogued on inane asylum. One of your favorite examples? Uh, wow, that's a good one. They're so they're so... I love the most recent one, the drying background. The... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> drying pork belly on the on the on the laundry pole. Although I said that's too interesting to be on, <laughs> yeah. on like on Inane Asylum, but it's like uh, what's a what's a good one? I'm trying to think of a, of a good example. Um, Some of the first Inane act that started this, <laughs> the first one that you captured. Ah, uh, uh, I know which one it is. So there was the one that really inspired me was that there was this whole hoo ha about this like clown. This guy dressed as a clown. Oh loitering yeah. outside schools yeah. Oh. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. was a tuition one which I think I guess for parents is mildly threatening but it became a whole hoo-ha with like police reports yeah. and then there was like a PR fiasco and I'm like do you all have nothing better to do <laughs> um, yeah it's only in Singapore where like I, I feel this thing would be like national news mm. and like I think even like I think speaker Tan Chuan Jin like yeah. put a Facebook post out to like reassure people that this is like <laughs> we're looking into it and I'm like huh I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, that was actually the first one that, that sparked it. I was like, wow, this is really inane. <laughs> like, people surely have better things to care about. But, but what do you see it doing, right? Like, is it for amusement? Is it... It's mostly for amusement. It's mostly for amusement. But I think it's also like... It's in some ways tied to the idea of like the state of anything but, but human, right? This, this idea of like modernist contentment and perfection. That you're not, you have nothing better to, to do. So that, that's 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 it. That you sort of go mad, uh, I think, which is the first part. Of it. So I guess you can draw a link there. But it's just really for my own amusement and community building, I guess. Because <laughs> people have been submitting yeah. it to like it. <laughs> so yes, please, please feel read, free to submit. Have you read the story written by Daryl Yang in Fish Eats Nine the Ducks? Yeah, 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 it's so funny. It's about a bus. Uh, it's about a bus, an SBS bus, basically that stops at Serangoon at a bus stop in Serangoon, but no one departs it. And it just stays there for a few days. And Daryl's the first to emerge from I'm the first, first three In this days. story, I'm the first to emerge. <laughs> so yeah, I'm very honored. The first time I've been r- written into fiction, I think, yeah. 
I'm actually very interested, you know, now that we've mentioned these other names and the, the history of the 10-year the series and, and the batch of, of poets. Tell, tell us more about the community, about, I don't know. Uh, so it was the starting days of like Singapore Rhymo, Singapore Poetry Writing Month, mm-hmm. which I think has made the careers of, or like kicks out of the careers of many poets in, in Singapore, in English at least. So I was like, me and a few others were at the start of this. So me, people like uh, Daryl Yam, Amanda Chong, Hao Kuang, Joshua, we were at the start of that. And then we basically formed a, the first thing we formed was like a writing collective. And we basically just found out, found like-minded folks to like start writing poetry together. So that's how a lot of us started off. Then I think the ten year series, which is the which was published by Math Fever Press, was like the first set of um, manuscripts that came out of this process called Manuscript Bootcamp, mm-hmm. which Singlet Station started. It so happened that a lot of them were like uh, people who were in that first writing group, which we call ISD, by the way. Image symbol department. Yeah. Yeah, it just so happened that way. So we became quite a tight group, I think, uh, like a few of us. And we sort of persisted. Now we don't actually do so much workshopping. It's more like a social thing. <laughs> but you know, we sort of like comment on each other's manuscripts and stuff like that. I think it's important not to have that support structure in place if you want to write. Yeah. Well, you all write in like pretty different styles with different concerns, right? So how do you still give each other? useful critic while respecting each Maybe it's the style. best way, actually. Yeah. Because we are, like, not, in some ways, not writing in the same space. It's actually easier to give objective feedback. I'm also glad that we don't, we're not, like, a collective in the sense of, like, uh, like the futurists or something, you know, and, yeah. where they have manifestos. Uh-huh. I think that's great, lah, because in some ways, we are so different. And it's good that you have a group of people who can allow you to do something that's so, so different, but also give you meaningful feedback. Yeah. I think that's, that's what's nice about it. It's not, it's not competitive, it's not like workshopping in the kind of like this very like US MFA, sorry, but kind of way where it's like, you know, you're like cutting people down to the bone. It's more like a more generous, informal form of feedback, which is great. And on that note, um, you know, what, what advice would you have for, you know, younger poets? Oh God. <laughs> uh, just read a lot. I think that's always been my advice to like everyone. So, so I like I mentor for like uh, the creative arts program. I just have to read a lot first, lah. Don't don't write so much. Like write minimally, read maximally. Like I think a lot of like young poets think that when they are first writing that they are like in the shit, like they're writing amazing things that no one has written before. But actually, it's it's never true. Right? Like people have written before you, very written much better stuff. So like get exposed and then you can start lah. What do you think about the state of singlet or narrowly Singapore poetry in English? Oh, that's a very like ponderous question. <laughs> what do I think about the state? I uh, can I just recycle one of my answers. Uh, yeah, okay, I'll I'll do that. Um, I said before that I think it probably increasingly is less useful to think of Singapore poetry as Singapore poetry, just because it's been so diverse, and because I think a lot of the folks I read probably draw their inspiration from a lot of things elsewhere that they've read. So it can be communities of, uh, let's say queer poetry or just other styles of or, or schools of poetry that they've come across and that maybe is what the internet really does it like kind of like allows people to form communities outside of their like national borders so I think it's, it's increasingly meaningless to talk about singlet but maybe the thing I would say is that I wish I wish that people were uh, read outside the anglophone centers a bit more meaning US UK lah, especially the US which I feel like it's almost like people feel like it's the, the be all and end all of like of poetry, which I can see why. I mean, there's great stuff coming out of like the US, but I think attention to like 
two, two, two places, Southeast Asia, which actually has a surprising amount of, it may not be written originally in like English, but there's quite a lot of translation going on. I wish people read more of that. Myanmar, of course, is a, actually a great uh, place for, for, I would say, inventive and quite, quite amazing uh, poetry. Uh, Vietnam as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on now. So I, I would encourage people to read out, outside of that. And read stuff in, in translation, of course. But so I think that will really uh, broaden people's horizon. There's quite little attention paid to like poetry or literature written in the other three national languages, right? Other than English. Yes. Exactly. So like even starting at home with yeah. that is important. So I've been yeah, la, talking about translation a lot. But just to bang the jump again, please translate more. <laughs> we need to do more of that. Okay, next. What are the biggest problems and opportunities in the field of singlet? Oh god. Not I... just writing, maybe like publishing as well. Oh yeah, yeah. So the general landscape. I mean we've always had, I think, not that many publishing houses, I guess. And now with like it seems like books actually and math paper press is closed or on on their last legs. So that's bad. There is really no like if you were like a aspiring debut poet. There's really no good place to go. Not that many good places to go. So we do need more diversity of like publishers. But I think the real problem at points that maybe is just having an outfit that has really like thought it through end to end in terms of the nitty gritty of printing distribution, but also like I think the marketing side of it and the reaching out to to readers to develop this dedicated poetry reading public, which I think exists. It's just that no one has really put them together. It used to be Matt Paper Press. I remember Paper Press tried to, try to do that and did it, I think, fairly su- successfully. But the problem, I think, with a lot of it was that we didn't have a good, like, editing culture. So I was just, I was just talking about this to, to some friends. That actually, in Singapore, I can't really think, and I'm sorry if I, this offends anyone, but I can't really think of someone I would think of in poetry as, like, a great editor that, like, people would, like, really think, oh, wow, we should talk to him to get his or her or their views. So... Maybe the age of this kind of like heroic editorship is gone, but I think it would be nice to have more dedicated editors in the scene. But of course, it's a, it's a money problem. Yeah, because like when I talk to published friends, they always say that like the main editors in a higher are like fellow poets, right? Yeah. As opposed to like dedicated editors. Exactly. I think that is a bit of a problem. I don't know if fiction faces the same issues. Probably less so because they are, they are more, there's more money in the sort of fiction ecosystem. And I guess it's not that much of an issue because in some ways because people also go overseas, which has worked for a few folks la, like uh, Hao Kuang is getting published uh, in Hawaii, uh, Ali also Ali Chua uh, who's getting published in Australia. But it does mean that, for example, a book like a very good book like Hamid's book, Hamid Rosalan's book, in some ways it's very hard to imagine like a overseas publisher publishing that because it's so in some ways rooted in in like Singapore and at least the Singapore and Malaysia, the sort of Malay world uh, region, right? You want someone, a publisher in like Singapore who understands that sort of text and kind of to bring it out. So in, I think that makes a case for like a local publishing. Next question. This one's kind of abstract. Should we all become anything but human? Your hands are also abstract. Uh, but uh, <laughs> this, is, this is particularly abstract. Yes, yes. yes. I, I agree with you. Should we become anything but human? Uh, uh, I think we already are. In many ways, we are, we are, we have, from the very start, been quite augmented by things that are not human, and it's just become increasingly more apparent. So, hello. So we are, we we already are. <laughs> Last question. Yes. Why bird? 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 Why bird?
Oh, I, I assume he's the, this person's referring to my pet. Uh, yeah, I have a pet bird. I have a pet cockatiel. Who's very adorable. There's no why, birds are. <laughs> Therefore, birds are. Um, but yeah, it's been a huge comfort <laughs> to me. Because I, I live alone. So like, having a pet is, is, a, is a nice way of doing things. Why do you choose a bird though? Why do I choose a bird? Yeah, like not a fish or anything else. Yeah. We can't do much with fishes. Fishes are just there. Yeah. <laughs> you can't like pet them or like, you know. They are surprisingly... F- Actually, they're really fun. Birds are... So birds are... So cockatiels are good because one... They are in some ways quite independent, so you can sort of let them be for a while. Of course, you should play with them every day. You should give them like some time to fly around. But they're generally quite independent. They don't really demand like constant attention. They won't roam around like disturbing things because they're in the cage. Um, I like dogs and cats. Also, I think um, they can fly, so that's quite cool. <laughs> like having a a living thing that can fly in your house that's not a cockroach or something. <laughs> so that's that's great. And yeah, I mean they can talk and they can sing, so that's also a plus. Therefore, bird. Okay, last thing. Is there anything you would like to share with our audiences? Uh, uh, no, just keep reading. Oh. Uh, keep reading good, good things. Keep reviewing things. I think that helps. And review things with some thought and not just for Instagram. Yes. Do you have any recommendations? I've been... No, I'll just tell you what, 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 what I've read that I've, that I've liked. Yeah. I've read... I've been reading... Uh, I've just finished this book by Emily Berry, who's like a UK poet called Unexhausted Time. The Guardian described her way of writing poetry as incendiary, which I think is correct. It's a, it, it, it's, it, will, it will blow your mind, I think. It's just a way of writing poetry that is not I've not seen before. Emily Berry. So that was it. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Daryl Lim, and we hope you learned a thing or two. Personally, I went away being able to appreciate anything but human on a much deeper level. Initially, I found the text alienating and confounding. Now I find myself revisiting certain works, fascinated by the words and images used. My personal favourite line would be, Sorry, I tried to reach you with outdated technology. Forgive me. Anyways, stay tuned and have a good day. Bye. Bye everyone. Bye.